Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered, Six months' wages will not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about five thousand in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, Gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward where they were going. The Gospel of the Lord. That was pretty feeble. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Um, some confirmation that you're awake. I need that. I need that particularly today. Um, over the last seven or eight years, I have been in pursuit of a, a sermon that would disappoint you, um, largely to no avail, uh, though I, I doubt very much that's universal. But, but I'm, I think I may have nailed it this morning. Okay. Um, one, of the, one of the difficulties, or at least a personal concern that I have with the lectionary on a consistent basis, is that it brings us inevitably to focus, I have a very narrow focus in the Scriptures, maybe a story 
sometimes less than a story, maybe a few verses. And sometimes out of a a verse, a, a preacher might pick a few words. And we have this very kind of a microscopic look at the Scripture. Rarely do we take a step back and see the long narrative sweep of some of the of some of the, uh, the the scriptural work in all of its amazing glory and how these individual pieces and verses and stories are woven together to make a whole that tells a tremendous story and truth for us to hear so because i am a huge fan of david and the story that we get this morning about david this this really gruesome story about David and Bathsheba and the death of Uriah, her husband, which is really a death sentence imposed by David to try to get him off the hook for his adulterous behavior. This is an amazing story, but it's just a little piece in the middle of one life. And, and David's story is so amazing that I want to tell you the whole story this morning. So I hope you haven't made plans for lunch. <laughs> no, I was warned by Michael that I need to tighten this up a little bit, so we will do our best. Um, but I want to give you this, I want to try to give you in a very short period of time this incredible narrative sweep that runs from 1 Samuel through 2 Samuel and into the first four chapters of First Kings. This is where the story of David resides. And this is great stuff. You know, if you really, if you like these shoot 'em up bang 'em up wild uh, summer blockbuster movies, you'll love 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and 1 Kings. This has blood. It has violence. It has spies. It has witches. It has adulterers. It has murderers. It has backstabbing. You know, I mean, this has everything you could possibly want in a, in a blockbuster. And it's all right there in the Bible. So treat yourself to it sometime. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and the first five chapters of 1 Kings. Okay, are you ready for this little historical ride here? Really? No snoring now, please. It disrupts my focus. Okay, if you're really going to understand the story of David, we need to back up just a little bit. Prior to the time of David and Saul, for that matter, the 12 tribes of Israel were simply a loose confederation of families. There was no overarching authority other than a group of people that they called judges. The judges who were lifted up from amongst the tribes really had only a kind of authority that, um, that allowed them to, to solve intertribal disputes and to organize intertribal celebrations of the common religious heritage. But beyond that, there was no powerful central government with regards to the 12 tribes of Israel. Until this period in history came along when the Philistines... You've heard of the Philistines? David, Goliath, all the Philistine stuff? The Philistines began to get themselves very well organized into an army and a kingdom, formed some alliances in the area that surrounded central Palestine, and began pressing in on the 12 tribes. 
It occurred to them that if they were going to be able to push back against the Philistines, they were going to need something more sophisticated to govern them than just this loose federation under the guidance of a judge. And so they asked for a king. They said, God, give us a king. God, in all of God's incredible wisdom, chose Saul. One wonders why. Saul is this, such a tragic figure in this story. He tries so hard. But in essence, Saul is really just a country farm boy who's been taken on this authority to kind of coordinate these tribes. They're, they're disinclined to cooperate. Saul clearly has zero charisma and almost no persuasive powers, and organizing them into any kind of an effective fighting group proves to be almost impossible. Saul appears to also be given to a certain amount of uh, periodic episodes of depression. And this is where David first appears on the scene. David appears in Saul's camp as an armor bearer and as a, you know, a good guy with a lute, you know, who can hum a pretty tune and calm Saul down and in these periods of melancholy that he faces. Now, as we know with the story of David and Goliath, David also happens to be pretty handy with a slingshot and some stones, all right? And so gradually, David arises to some fame, not only in the court, but as a warrior. Now, we all know the story of David and Goliath, right? And the smooth stones, and he gets up with a slingshot. But, you know, this is one of the shortcomings of the lectionary. Because the lectionary passage, whenever we read that ends with Goliath prone on the ground and David with his sturdy slingshot, right? But if you bother to read the very next verse, it goes like this. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He grasped his sword, drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and then cut off his head with it. Any of you know that part? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, this is a part that oftentimes gets skipped over. So David clearly had some, some warrior blood, and he was willing to use it on the battlefield. So you've heard the phrase perhaps in the scripture, Saul has killed his thousands and David is ten thousands. So the, the, the stock of David is rising, the stock of Saul is falling, Saul realizes that his rule is in doubt and in trouble, and the obvious solution would be what? get rid of David, okay? So despite the fact that David is best friend with Saul's son, Jonathan, despite the fact that David has married Saul's daughter, Michael, Saul sets out to kill David. David, understanding, thanks to a warning from Jonathan, understands his life is in jeopardy. He gathers around his family and four or five hundred of his closest warrior friends, okay? The man is running a private army, and he flees to the countryside, where he lives on the fringes of the Israelite society, surviving as best he can, kind of in a nomadic lifestyle. Now, he's a very creative guy. You know how he makes a living out there? He runs a protection scheme. You know what a protection scheme is? Leith, you got a business? You do. How's your business doing? It went fabulous. It went fabulous. You having any troubles at all, Leith? 
None. Would you like to not have any troubles at all, Leith? Yeah, well, looks and Leith, I can see to that. For just, oh, I don't know, a modest amount deposited into my bank account every week. Yay. Smart guy, Leith, because I'm sure if you don't make the deposits, I can pretty much guarantee that bad things are going to happen. Right? Yeah. Well, we hear this in the story in 1 Samuel of Nabal and Abigail. Nabal is a sheep herder. He has this huge flock. He keeps them out in the countryside. David sees that Nabal has all his sheep. He has a pretty prosperous household. Maybe, probably, Nabal would not like to lose any of his sheep, right? He'd like to keep everybody happy. So, David sends his, his uh, subordinates in to talk to Nabal and say, Are you happy? Have you lost any sheep? No. You had any trouble? No. Well, how about you have David and all of his four or five hundred guys over to brunch? You know, we'll all be friends. Nabal says, not interested. I don't need that. Now, Nabal is either stupid or stubborn, probably both, and he's right. You know, why should he fall for this protection scheme? He's doing okay. The subordinates take this news back to David, who is not pleased. He says, well, I guess we need to teach Nabal a lesson. You know, he shouldn't have done that. That wasn't smart. Meanwhile, one of the servants of the household who was in the room when this little negotiating thing was going on between David and Nabal runs back to the house and tells and rats him out. Says to Abigail, you know what your husband just did? Your husband just sold us down the river to David. You know? And we're in trouble because David's on the way here right now with 500 guys and they got and they're not happy. And this is not good. So Abigail says, ay, 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 what is with my husband? She loads up two cartloads of the family's precious goods, and she races out to meet David. David, I'm so sorry. You know, we don't mean any trouble to you. We don't want any problems. Take this stuff. We'll be good. Well, David notices that she's not only smart, but she's pretty. Right? So he says, okay. You know, your husband, not so bright, but you were okay with that. So she breathes a sigh of relief. Everybody departs happily until Nabal comes home and finds out his wife has double-crossed him. Okay? He's not happy. He is shamed. He's no longer in charge of his own household. He can't trust his wife. He's now beholden to David. You know, and as luck would have it, He dies within two weeks. And David, seeing Abigail, now unencumbered, eh, why not marry her? So David and Abigail get married. Combine their households. This kind of lifestyle is obviously wearing. He wants a place to settle down. So he cuts a deal with a guy named Achish, who is the king of Gath. Now, the Gath is one of the enemies of Israel. Okay, he's one of the arch enemies of Israel, and David sells his services as a mercenary to the king of Gath. Now, I think in our culture today, we have a word for that. I think it's called treason, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's called treason. So, 
But David convinces Achish, the king of Gath, that he would like to settle down a little bit. So he convinces the king to give him a little town in the borderlands called Ziklag, where he and Abigail can set up household, they can have parties and friends over on the weekends, and then they can just go raiding during the week, you know, and then come home. So, but here's the deal that David is playing. He's got this little double-cross game going on over here. When he goes out raiding, you guys are all the Israelites over here, okay? You are all of the Israelites' enemies, their worst enemies, okay? You're very bad people, right? So David, he goes out raiding, and he goes and he raids against your homes, And when he takes over a town, he kills everybody, leaves not one survivor, quite deliberately. He takes all of your sheep, all your grain, all your personal goods, and he takes them back, and he shares them with the king. But here's the catch. What he tells the king is that I was over there raiding against the Israelites. I was burning their towns. I was killing their people. I was taking their sheep. I was robbing them of all their possessions. When in fact, he's killing these people, which makes these people happy, right? Think David's a pretty good guy. He's looking out for your, your interests, right? So the king, he says, well, David here is killing his own people. They're going to hate him. So I've obviously got David as my guy in my back pocket for the rest of my life, Right? Because he's just made himself an arch enemy of his own folks. That's what the king thinks. As time goes by, the king of Gath forms an alliance with the Philistines and several other kingdoms around, and they decide they've had enough of Saul. They're going to take him on in battle and conquer Israel and put this little nitwit out of business for good. And because David is the king's guy, David is obviously going to go along on this crusade, right? Which means this is going to put him in a situation where he's doing battle with his own people, which David has assiduously tried to avoid. So David has to figure out how to play this. So the king says, well, you're going to come and fight with me. And David says, of course, you're my man. You can trust me. I've always done good by you. Gachi says, wonderful. So let's muster all the troops together from all of the, all the different kingdoms. So they all come together. And who is there, of course, but the Philistines. So the Philistines' army, they're there. Now, you know what? The Philistines have heard of David, right? Because they've been through this whole Goliath thing. So the Philistines have heard of David. And they say, whoa, what is he doing here? And the king says, he's my man. You know, he's my trustworthy servant. He's been fighting for me for years now. And he, you know, he, he wants to go into battle. And, he, and they say, no, are you kidding? No way. We can't trust this guy. He's likely to turn on us in the middle of the battle, you know, and, and we'll be done for. We're just, if he's going, we're not going. David says, oh, you've wounded me. How could you think that I could be so disloyal to you. And the king says, David, David, it's all right. Don't take it personal, really. Don't take it personal. They just don't know you the way I do. You know, they don't know you. They don't know how much 
you love me. And, uh, you know, but so don't take it personal, but please leave. Go home. Oh, man, you got to imagine David was just going, oh, my God, that was close. That was really close. How was I going to play that out? So David leaves. They go into battle against Saul. Saul dies. Interesting story. We don't have time to tell it. David is settled down. David is settled down, and he's got a family, and he's now having kids. Okay? So, now, he's got four boys. Amnon, you've got to remember these names, okay? This will be on the quiz. Amnon, Chileab, forget Chileab. He does, he's nothing. He disappears. The only time he's ever mentioned in the Bible. So you can forget him. What's the first one? Amnon. Good. You guys are great. Absalom and Adonijah. Those are names that are all going to appear here before we get done. Now, Saul dies in the battle, but his kingdom is not overwhelmed. His son takes his place, um, and that is a little a funky name, Ishabeth. And Ishabeth is in charge of the Israel kingdom along with a general named Abner. David decides that now that there's a little power vacuum in the south, he will move in from his little southern city and set up the southern kingdom in Hebron with him as the head and a guy named Joab as his number one general. Okay? So at this particular point, They're kind of settled into the two kingdoms. And then David decides, you know, it really would be better if it were just one kingdom. That's kind of what I've all had in mind all along. So we're going to, he's going to launch an offensive against the northern kingdom, against Ishabeth and Abner. This whole thing starts out, they're doomed up north. They really don't know up from down. This is Saul's family. They're all losers. Abner's the only smart one of the bunch. And while the battle is going on, Abner sneaks away, and he has a private conversation with David. And he says, I'm willing to defect. You know, this guy I'm working for is a loser, not going to work out. I'm ready to throw my alliance in with you. David says, Abner, you were always good to me. You're, you know, I have no trouble with you. That's fine. Let's form an alliance. That's fine. Abner leaves. Joab is up on the battlefield. Joab comes back, and he finds out that David has cut this deal with Abner. And Joab thinks this is a stupid idea. Why would you want... Are you going to trust this general, this opposing general, to suddenly kind of like change sides and be good? David says, yes, I do. And I don't want a hair on Abner's head to be harmed. So what do you suppose Joab does? Hunts Abner down and kills him. Okay, that's the kind of guy that Joab is. So now that Joab and Ishabeth are out of the way, Ishabeth gets assassinated, by the way, in this process, David sets himself up as king of the United Kingdoms, both Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And this is when he decides to make his capital in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem at that particular time is not occupied by Hebrews. It is occupied by a, a group of people known as the Jebusites who were convinced that Jerusalem was an impregnable fortress and nobody could take it. David proved otherwise. He snuck into the city, another great story we don't have time to tell. He overthrew the Jebusites and 
planted himself in Jerusalem. And that is why, and it was David's city. It was a little bit like Washington, D.C., okay? Washington, D.C. is not in Maryland. It's not in Virginia. It's its own place, separate entity. Jerusalem was David's city. It was not in Judah. It was not in Israel. It was, and it was his. It was his own property. He defended it with his private band. And after he settled in there, he brought in the Ark of the Covenant and made it the religious center of his kingdom. So, at that particular point, with all of him coalescing his natural powers around him, he suddenly stops and thinks, I wonder if there are any other people in the lineage of Saul that I should worry about. It turns out that there's one guy by the name of Mephibosheth who turns out to be the son of Jonathan, and he has a club foot, and he's absolutely the last thing in the world that would be a threat. But David says, oh, bring Mephibosheth to me. I want him to dine at my table. I want to honor his history. I want to treat him like my son. Do you believe any of that? No. This is the only living member who can claim royal lineage to Saul and has a legitimate claim to the throne which David holds. And so David wants him right here where he can keep his eye on him all the time. Things settle in. Life goes on, wars, spring comes, Joe, you know, Joab and everybody goes out to war, David's got the kingdom, he's happy, he's home, you know, the fields are beautiful, the sky is beautiful, the town is beautiful, the woman bathing in the rooftop is beautiful, you know, life is beautiful, until he gets her pregnant, he can't get her husband to sleep with her. Decides that, you know, since that doesn't work, he'll just kill him. Why not? He's a king. You get by with these things when you're king. That's what he thought. People knew. People talked. Nathan finally confronts David about this sinfulness. Once again, another great story we don't have time to tell. But David admits to his, his sin, repents of his wrongdoing, But the punishment is this, is that the child of that trysting will die. And he does. David grieves piteously for this child. But life goes on. Bathsheba becomes pregnant again, gives birth to another son whose name is Solomon. Okay? Important name in the history. Now, a little lesson in family dysfunction. (laughs) Anybody here tell me again David's firstborn son's name? Amnon. Guys, it really are good. Okay, now you have to accept the fact that David had more wives than we can count. Okay, that just once again, he's king. All right, You you can do those things. So David has other children. One of them is a young lady by the name of Tamar. Amnon falls head over heels for Tamar. 
He just mopes and moans whenever he's not with Tamar. Everybody else in the family, his brother and sister, are going like, dude, she's your sister. Okay? Get over it, dude. I mean, it's like it's not cool to be lusting after your sister. But, you know, Amnon is not to be dissuaded, despite all this advice he's getting. So he sets up a little scenario where he gets Tamar alone, and he rapes her. And as often happens in these things, as soon as he rapes her, he's disgusted by her, hates her, kicks her out, despises her, treats her vilely. It's just, it's horrible, horrible behavior. Everybody knows that this has happened. Daddy does nothing. He says, Amnon's my, Amnon's my number one son. You know, my firstborn, my favorite boy. I mean, it wasn't good, but, you know, what, I, I'm, you know, what am I supposed to do? So he does nothing. Two years, he does nothing. Meanwhile, Absalom seethes with rage, just seethes with rage, that this has gone on in their household and David has done nothing to set things right. So two years down the road, there's a sheep shearing festival that's taking place on the countryside outside Jerusalem, and Absalom says, let's all have a party. I'll take everybody out to the sheep shearing. There'll be food, there'll be drink, there'll be happy times. Let's all go that. David says, oh, how wonderful the boys are getting along again. Great stuff. So they all go out there having a rousing good time, and as soon as they're away from the city, Absalom seizes the moment to kill his brother, Amnon, and say, some justice had to be done, and I did it. All the rest of the family flees back to Jerusalem. Absalom retreats into the wilderness, knowing that you know, this would not be countenanced by his father. Three years go by. Absalom's out there doing whatever he's doing. David has still done nothing about any of this. Enter Joab, the sensible, bloodthirsty general, okay, who is very clear that, that number one, David is pining for his son, and two, that like Meshibapheth, he would rather have Absalom here, nearby, to keep your eye on him than having him wandering around loose somewhere up to God knows what. So he goes to David and he says, look, you know, it's an ugly thing that happened between Absalom and Amnon and Tamar, but, you you know, let's forgive and forget. Bring the boy home. David relents and says, okay, let him come home. So he comes home, but David refuses to see him. They're living in the same town. He's not welcome at family events. He doesn't come into the temple. You know, David is just shunning him. And after two more years, uh, Absalom is fed up with this routine. He wants to, you know, something better than this. This is not what I came back for. So he tries to reach out to Joab so he can get, you know, Joab to be an intermediary again. And Joab just blows him off. Won't answer his, you know, won't respond to his text messages. Won't answer his cell phone, you know. Emails are just disappearing into the, into the Internet, you know. It's, so, so Absalom says, 
you know what I noticed, guys? He says, you know, to his servants, he says, I noticed, you know, Joab's farm is right next to our farm. And I have a feeling that if we set fire to his fields, that might get his attention. So that's what they do. They set fire to Joab's fields, and sure enough, it gets his attention. Absalom says, look, come on. I don't want to just hang out here as a nobody. Speak up for me again with my dad. Let's get this thing behind us. Joab does. David welcomes him in. Absalom comes in, prostrates himself on the floor, says, I'm so sorry. David says, oh, my son, my son, you're so warm, da, 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 and never talks to him again. Four years go by. Four years. Absalom, spending those four years, sitting at the city gate as petitioners come into the city. He stops them. He says, Bill, what's your problem, Bill? Oh, the king's, king's too busy. King's way busy, man. He's never going to have time to see you about that, Bill. And if he did, he probably wouldn't settle it in your favor anyway, Bill. So there's no point. Don't bother. I'll take care of you. You, you know, we'll work it out together, Bill. Okay? Yeah. You like that. Absalom's a good guy, right? Yeah. Four years he's doing this, currying favor throughout the kingdom. He finally goes to his dad and says, you know, I've developed a religious streak. And I'd like to go to Hebron in order to offer a sacrifice to God. Well, great. You know, that's one of the great holy sites in the history of Judaism. So fine, go to Hebron. That's a bunch of bull. Absalom takes off, pulls together his army of all the people like Bill, and turns right around and mounts a siege of Jerusalem. Catches David, duh, completely by surprise. How can this man be surprised? Catches him completely by surprise. David barely has enough time to, you know, uh, you know, pick up his laptop and, you know, a couple other precious items before he leaps on his horse and rides out of town. You know, I mean, he's just, he and his four or five hundred best friends are scrambling for their lives. Meanwhile, Absalom takes Jerusalem, establishes himself on the throne, announces that the the country has a new king, and calls in his advisors, what do we do next? His two top advisors, we got over here, we've got Brett, and you're going to be the very brilliant Ahithopel. You look very brilliant. And Pat is going to be Hushai. Now, it turns out that Ahithopel is a longtime friend of uh, Absalom's, Hushai, though, actually was a a longtime counselor of David's. And so Absalom goes, boy, you threw him under the bus in a hurry. You know, I mean, you, what was that all about? And Hushai goes, well, you know, he was a temperamental sort, and you know, you know how he was, and so I'm, I'm a realist. I'm here with you, you know, because I can see the writing on the wall, see where the future's going. So he says, okay, well, we'll listen to you both. Ahithopel says, David's desperate. You have flushed him out. He is on the run. He is disorganized. The thing to do is to get on our horses right now, chase that SOB down, and smash him like a bug before he even knows what hit him. Sounds pretty smart to me, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Hushai says, look, you know, David's a smart guy. 
He's a very smart guy, and he's probably got some trick up his sleeve, and we ought not to go running out there half-cocked. You need to take some time. Take a week, maybe, I don't know, whatever it takes. You know, solidify your kingdom, enlarge your army, kind of get yourself organized. Then you'll have lots of time to go out and hunt David down and crush him like a bug. Absalom says, Hushai, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna enjoy being king for a while here. And then we'll go out and get David. Of course, little does he know that Hushai is actually a spy. This is the spy part, guys. I told you there'd be spies. This is the spy. He's a spy. And he's getting David exactly what David needs. David needs time. He's still the king here. He has a lot of supporters, but he needs time. And Hushai buys it for him. By the time Absalom gets his act together and takes his men out on the road, they walk right into a trap that David has set up, and the whole thing is a boondoggle. David has given strict orders to everybody that despite the nefarious behavior of his son Absalom, Absalom is not to be harmed. He's to be taken alive. It's the king's son. What do you suppose Joab does? He finds him and he kills him. Okay, bigger story there. We don't have time to tell. Anyway, the revolt is squashed. David returns to the throne. And it would be nice to say that everybody lived happily ever after. But I'm sure in that household they did not. The next critical turn of events, though, doesn't take place until David is advanced in years and near death. And the first chapter of 1 Kings starts out like this. David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So his servants said to him, Let a young virgin be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be his attendant. Let her lie in your bosom so that my lord the king may be warm. This is apparently what they did before electric blankets. You know, this is... It's a very interesting strategy, guys. He might, anyway. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory, and they found somebody, and the girl was beautiful, and she became the king's attendant and served him. And then there's this little phrase in Scripture, but the king did not know her sexually. Now, that's not there just because of prurient interest. It's because that was a sure sign that David's vitality was gone, that his manhood and virility were at such a low ebb that probably anybody could seize the throne. He was beyond being able to fight back. You know, he was an old, old man. So in light of that, his fourth oldest son, and none of you are going to remember his name, Adonijah, with the clearest claim to the throne, Adonijah cuts an alliance with Joab, David's main general, and a priest by the name of Abiathar to give some spiritual legitimacy to this. So before David is dead, they have a little banquet in the corner of the temple area, Jerusalem, And they announce that Adonijah is king. And the call goes up over the city, Long live the king! Long live the king! 
course, there are some people that think the king is still alive. One of them being Nathan, who hightails it to Bathsheba. Remember Solomon? Nathan says to Bathsheba, I was kind of under the impression that you wanted Solomon to be king when David died. Well, yeah. And so she hotfoots it to David, who is still alive, and says, Adonijah and Abner and Abiathar have risen up against you, and unless you do something, Solomon will not be king, so do something. So he calls in his key advisors. He says, Solomon will be king. Benaiah ben Jehoiada, who was another general in my army, should be in charge of the, of the, the army. Zadok, another priest in the temple, will provide le- religious legitimacy to this effort. And Nathan, the prophet, will stand by his side. And another cry goes up over the, long live the king. Well, when Adonijah and his guys hear that, they figure their goose is cooked. They didn't think there would be other applicants for this job. And when they find out that there are other applicants for the job, they run in fear. Now, David has given specific instructions that... um, uh, Joab is to be killed no matter what. No, absolutely no quarter is to be given. So Adonijah ends up being assassinated rather quickly. Joab runs into the temple and hangs on to the horns of the Ark of the Covenant. The holiest of holy places where Benaiah ben Jehoiada goes in and cuts him down. Abiathar, because he had been at one time a helpful person in David's uh, priestly realm, was not killed, but was um, sent um, off to, what's the word? Oh, well. Exiled to his hometown of Anatoth. So all the bloodshed, David dies, Solomon sits on the throne. So this is the sweep that we're talking about. This huge, long sweep of history that is told. And now what's amazing about this is that, is that this scholars are really clear that this story was put down here by people who liked David. Can you imagine what the people who didn't like David had to say about him? So what's the point of all this? I think of it as a good news, bad news situation. The good news for us is this. If you think that you have behaved so badly that you don't deserve a second chance, please remember David. Okay? He was an adulterer and a murderer who lusted after power, used terror tactics to preserve his position and authority, and topped it off by being a miserable husband and a lousy father. And yet, he was God's chosen. 
and the lineage of Jesus is traced through him. Now, if God thinks that David is a man after his own heart, then there is room for us. Don't forget that. That is really good news. The bad news for us is this. If you think that your neighbor has behaved so badly that he or she doesn't deserve a second chance, please remember David. Redemption and salvation are always a possibility. Maybe Jesus was remembering his own ancestry. Maybe he was remembering David when he said, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. And when he said, why, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? If David is God's chosen, if David, if if Jesus is son of David, then there is most definitely room for us in the kingdom of God. I invite you now to stand as together we affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. Saying together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, the Almighty, 